Welcome back to the WSLB Team Podcast. I'm Dave Prodan. Joining me is Chris Morrow and Milby Shannon. Uh, it's been a minute, but we're back. We're going to be back every week bringing you stories from the surfing world. Chris, let's kick it off. What's happening in the surfing world right now? Well, obviously, Dave, we've got Chopu right around the corner and uh, a title race heating up. You know, it's pretty interesting right now after J-Bay. Things have tightened up quite a bit. We saw Wilco slip up and John John and Gabe gain some ground here. And I think it's safe to say this is going to be a turning point event. Um, it's a pivotal one for, for the title race with those three. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how conditions favor these guys. Gabe obviously is a previous winner. Wilco's had bad luck there in the past. Never really had a great result there. But um, – you tell me. I mean, the forecast does not look like classic epic 10-foot chopu, so that could play into things. Uh, no, not at this stage. It doesn't. Um, I actually got the forecast from our friends at Surfline right now, and it says that we will see a modest pulse of inconsistent south-southwest swell, which will fill in Friday afternoon. Now, south-southwest is that direction where you see the longer waves um, sort of from up the point run down the reef as opposed to the ones that focus on that west bowl and and give us those classic Chopu conditions. Um, so it'll fill in Friday afternoon and over the weekend to open the waiting period with a potentially stronger south swell, which will fill in for Tuesday, Wednesday before gradually easing. So slower surface expected after that, but there is some potential towards the end of the contest waiting period. So as of right now, no, it doesn't look like the 2014 year, the 2011 year on the cards. So how does that play into your fantasy picks yeah going into chopu considerably so i mean it's it's weird right because chopu is one of those waves that 10 years ago hell five years ago not everyone in the field knew the wave inside and out not everyone was committed to certain parts of the reef or maximizing their tube riding i I would argue that that's completely different these days especially when you're looking at the head high to a couple feet overhead and under every one of those guys in this event knows exactly where to sit on the reef to maximize the critical component of their scoring rights. And really it's going to become a, a contest about motivation and, and determination and, and basically battling for those waves. So it's going to be really interesting and, you know, uh, non-classic forecast or not, this event matters. Oh yeah. It's a huge one. So I guess the question though, is what kind of performances are we going to see? Because if it drops below, if Chopu is, you know, six feet and under, you run that risk of it becoming more of a performance-based, not a tube riding contest. The judges really have to tweak their scale. And all of a sudden, you know, for the, the fantasy guys, you have to take that into consideration. It's like, okay, wait a minute. They're going to be scoring turns and errors. Turns and errors, again, going back to then it's a goofy versus regular thing. You know, small chopu, does it favor the goofy footer more than the regular footer? Yeah, that's hard to say. I mean, it's also about, you know, the, the reef from the takeoff zone to the end of the ride is, is really compressed at, at Chopu. So even even if you're preferring to serve it on your forehand or backhand, you don't have a lot of space to maximize scoring opportunity. I think you're going to see a lot of people finishing their waves on dry reef. And historically, I think that's favored people like, like the Hobgood brothers or people on their forehand who can really hammer that last section and, and ride out over it. Um, I mean, we saw that similarly with, like, Italo Ferreira, even at Fiji last year, where he was really taking on that last section. So someone like Italo could be an interesting pick. 
you know, those scrappy forehand guys that are really technically proficient in terms of finding the pocket, being able to click off a lot of high, high profile turns in a short space of time. I think that's kind of where I'm going to be leaning heading into the event space. But that said, you never know. I mean, the guys like John John, guys like defending winner Jeremy Flores, they're so good out there on their backhand. They're so comfortable. Guys like Kelly. It's going to be a really interesting event. Yeah, and, you know, I think it's, you know, you throw a guy like Bruno in who's the wild card and a former winner, um, won the trials, so he's obviously feeling it. This is this is Bruno's fifth time winning that trials. I don't think we've had any other event where a trialist has won that many times and gotten in the main event. The only one that maybe comes close is Sean Holmes at J-Bay, but Bruno, but, I think, would get him. <laughs> yeah, and I don't even think Sean had to necessarily surf a bunch of those trials. It was just a wild card, sure, right? Yeah. So the fact that he's earned it is even more impressive. He's had to fight for it each time, and it wasn't like it was easy. He had guys like Jack Robinson and that in the, in the trial, so it's a tough go. The other thing that's kind of shocking when you look at the stats is a guy like Michelle Berez who grew up at Chopu, but he's never really had a great result there. I don't understand. Yeah, no, it, I mean, that's a good point. Um, you know, Michelle is the first Tahitian to qualify for the show since uh, Poto, right? Mm-hmm. Poto David. And I, I was talking to Stephen Bell from Quicksilver a couple of years ago about this, and Stephen uh, managed uh, Michelle, who was on the Quicksilver team when he was younger. And he said, well, you know, Michelle never was – a Chopu guy compared to some of those guys that grow up there and live it and breathe it. He was always this really well-rounded guy, and he surfed a lot of the other reef passes. He surfed Papara very well, and that's why he was able to succeed on the QS and then transition to the CT where he's won events at, at other places outside of Tahiti. So it'll be interesting to see how he applies that this year. I mean, I saw something earlier that he was just recovering from almost a year-long injury, mm-hmm. and he posted something on Instagram stating that he was finally – incorporating airs back into his approach. And someone yeah. like Michelle, who you don't consider an air guy, he actually has a huge air game. Well, it's interesting what you just said about what, you know, Belly's take was on, on where he surfed because we actually just threw an interview with him up on the site today, and it's, it's, it's basically a, um, a little summary of a video profile that we'll, we'll be releasing soon. But he, we talked about that, and he said one of the reasons why, you know, he stuck to other zones when he was a kid was – Boards were hard to come by, and if you broke your board, you were toast, and you couldn't get one for a month. And he's just like, you know, we didn't have a ton of money, and my parents, like, I was, my neighbor was the guy who took me surfing all the time, and and so that was just part of his coming of age process. Was he stuck to a lot of those those other reef passes besides Chopu? But then, you know, he, but he still considers himself, you know, pretty regular Chopu surfer now, you know. So that's why it'll be interesting to see if he can if he can break through. So the other big news, obviously, uh, aside from these title races in the last week or so, is the Olympics announcement and the fact that surfing is, uh, is headed for Tokyo. And I don't know if you guys have caught your Olympic fever these last couple of weeks, but I've certainly been doing my share of staying up late and watching and uh, would love to hear your take on surfing in the Olympics and, and what we could look forward to when you, when you watch – this year's events in Rio, uh, how do you picture surfer surfing fitting into this equation? Yeah, it'll be interesting to imagine. I, I mean, to clarify, so a, a week and a half ago, I think it was, the IOC confirmed a five-event proposal package for the 2020 Games, and surfing was one of those five events, which in addition to skateboarding, sport climbing, 
karate and baseball softball were all approved for the 2020 games and it was sort of a one-off thing it hasn't been approved in perpetuity um, so we know that it's been approved for 2020 we know that it's going to be a 40 person event 20 men 20 women and we know that their desire is to hold it in somewhere in the chiba prefecture um, so so it'll be really interesting i mean watching the olympics this week it, it's such a hydra of an event in that there are so many events. There are so many competitors in so many different countries that living in America, you're getting a very tailor-made version of the Olympics. Mm. Living in other countries, you're getting a different version because they're sort of championing their, their regional right. uh, champions. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think from a media perspective, it's interesting how they're serving that up to the fans. You know, I watch a little bit on sort of the live stream or the delayed stream on NBC. I try to watch sort of the delayed programming on um, – on broadcast television, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's interesting if there's something that you really want to find and watch, it, it's a challenge. Yeah. Well, it's, it, and it's, it's interesting. You talk about the future of television and it's think about how much has changed in the last four years and what it's going to look like in 2020 is a different, a whole different ball game. And it is to your point, it's very curated to every region. And, you know, I've worked on a lot of Olympic games and, um, before coming here, and one of the interesting things that that's uh, we see in terms of attention is at the end of the day, who gets the network love, right? Um, the network love matters a lot. You see it here in the U.S. Obviously, swimming and gymnastics in the Summer Olympics take center stage, especially especially that first week. Um, and as we move into the second week, the Olympics now it's starting to go into the track and field kind of thing. Um, the beach volleyball. The, you know, rowing, the kayaking, and there's all these other summer sports that you didn't even know existed, right? Um, but they're out there. And that's the difference between summer and winter. And, uh, you know, winter's got way fewer amount of sports. So it was much easier for a sport like snowboarding to come in and make a big dent. You know, it's right next to those big main events. The venues are pretty much the same. All the cameras don't have to change locations, the whole nine. Surfing, you know, we've got our work for to cut out for us in order to, to get some, some attention. And I think the big thing is, you know, the question on everybody's mind is going to be wave quality, where we go. And none of us, I don't think, want to see Olympic gold medals being rewarded in two-foot slop. No. I mean, I think the Olympics, it's a, it's a huge platform, and um, it has the potential to introduce not only the sport but the characters and, and – and to a huge new audience, and I guess the hope is that it's going to be done in the best possible fashion. I mean, Japan gets great waves. I think in the summer it could be a challenge. Yeah. But, you know, we'll see. I, I think another question is which countries are going to qualify, right? So yeah. So if there's 20 on men's and women's and there's two people for each team, that's 10 countries that have to get through an international qualifier to make it to the show. Um, and we're talking about four years on. So of a pretty considerable – American stable, which will likely include Hawaiians. Who's going to be the two Americans, and who are going to be the two uh, Hawaiians that that turn up for 2020 in Japan? Interesting. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be fun, and it's hard. It, you know, four years is a lifetime in surf world. You know, in terms of who's going to be who's going to be at the top of their game. You know, that qualification process is another one that's going to be interesting to figure out for every country. Um, so so much to be determined yeah. on the Olympic front. Yeah, yeah. and and I mean, it, you know, we have our superstars today, but they may be waning stars by the time the Olympics comes around. Mick Fanning has already said he doesn't 
want to compete in the Olympics, but he wants to coach. Kelly, on the other hand, said he wants to compete. He's yeah. going to have to be – Kelly's 44, so he's going to be 48. He's going to be approaching 50 and wanting to have a gold medal in the Olympics. I'm sure he's been inspired by Michael Phelps and a number of other superstar American athletes in getting that gold. But he's going to be after competing against you know, Chloe Andino, Nat Young, John John Florence, and, and guys that aren't even on the radar yet, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, agreed. I think it's there's going to be some some kids who are 17 now who uh, are going to ha- have something to say about that. You know, <laughs> well that that's going to be super interesting, and it'll be a fun story to track as we uh, move through the next months and years. What else been happening this week, Chris? Well, it's really you know this is an interesting time of year. Um, like we said, with the title race and everything, and and we've had a bit of a break on the CT level. Um, some. Interesting announcements have come in that time. One of them from B. Durbage, who is, you know, we've seen him on tour. He's been helping us commentate. He's been there coaching John John. But he has announced that he is finally coming back after his injury, and he's signed up for the Triple Crown, which we're very glad to see. Um, you had something to do with that announcement, Dave. Uh, well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, he reached out to me and wanted to make it known because he was – the reason was he was getting so much media attention because he's out surfing around home and ripping. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I was on the beach when he when he broke his pelvis. It was horrific. Mm-hmm. And you just saw this crumpled human being, and, and you didn't know it was going to happen. Yep. And and now he is back, and he, I think he said he's surfing at 75%, although his 75 is like my 5,000%. Um, he's doing huge turns. He's getting barreled, and and – I, it's just shocking that he could come back from such a severe injury 11 months after the fact. Yeah, uh, especially, you know, the the hip injury, which the big thing with that is it's a weight-bearing one. Um, you know, it's easy. A lot of guys who break wrists or arms or this or that, that's a one-month, two-month, and you usually are pretty good. But think of how crucial your hip is to the surfing process. It's just it's it's everything and and anything any doctor will tell you if it's a weight bearing area it's a year it's a year before you're even close to normal and here he is it's end of august and beads done what he's done um and he's he's saying he's ready to come back that that's impressive on several levels cuz it just it just sort of sheds some light on how committed he is probably to the rehab process and those things are never ever easy Think about how painful that is. Yeah, yeah. Bead. Um, the other interesting thing about Bead this year is he's been, excuse me, he's been advising John John mm-hmm. at the events, and, and he was my my neighbor in in the bury next to me on on Fiji in Fiji, and he he was surfing then. He was on a single fin, and and I, I remember <laughs> surfing pretty sizey, well sizey, but but serious restaurants one day, and he was pulling in, and people were freaking out because you're talking about someone. This is June, so just over half a year away from the incident and, and he's out there pulling into serious waves again. I, I think in a, in addition to him being a really strong person, you know, uh, uh, physically and of character, I just think his passion for surfing and it probably rings true for most surfers is so strong. And it's such a motivator that once you get a taste for coming back, you realize why you missed it so much. I mean, most of us here have probably been through injuries, and mm. um, you come back and you just you just love it so much more. I'm sure that's helped him on his road to recovery. And man, it's it's going to be really interesting to see him put the jersey back on. It's definitely an ongoing theme. I mean, you look at, I mean, Fanning, and we all. It seems like 
you know, decades ago when that muscle was ripped from his leg and he was out for the better part of a year himself and, you know, what that did to his career. Um, it's amazing. You know, and speaking of guys who just refuse to go away, one of the other things that I thought was pretty interesting this last week was the specialty event they had in the Maldives with Taj Burrow and Shane Dorian uh, getting perfect surf at the Four Seasons Maldive Surf Trophy, which that format is pretty hilarious because it's a single fin, twin fin thruster competition where you have to ride all all three. Those guys, uh, once again, scored perfect surf. It's the second year in a row, and um, it's pretty hilarious to see. You watch the highlight reels on the site and stuff like that, and these guys are ripping. Oh, they are ripping, and I'm trying to remember all the contestants. It was Rob Machado, Shane Dorian, who was last year's winner, Jamie O'Brien, Taj Burrow, Bethany Hamilton, and our own commissioner, Travis Logie. And <laughs> it looked like they all brought their significant others and were pampered for a week. Um, not only in the water with great surf, but at the resort. So it looked like one of those really interesting contests. And it is super cool to see those guys take on different equipment, you know, riding a single fin, riding a 20, and riding a thruster. Uh, there were arguments last year that, that Shane kind of bucked tradition because he had this sort of versatile board that he was riding as a thruster and as a 20, and guys were like, that's not really a 20, bro. You just took the middle, you know. <laughs> Cheater. Um, but, I mean, yeah, it, it must be weird, like, for Taj, who's retired. Yeah. Um, and knew he was going to retire, but he's won the Commune 1000 yeah. you know, at Kramis, right? Um, in in perfect surf, right, and then he won this uh, the Four Seasons event in perfect surf, and I think I think Taj, what we're seeing is when the pressure's off, and he's just having fun. He's with his family. Um, he's still such a world class surfer, um, and maybe he's going to be a little bit sharper. Um, yeah, in, in whatever we get to see him in free surfs or exhibitions like this. Yeah, exactly. Well, and we'd be remiss as far as the other headlines, you know, um, if we didn't mention the passing of Midget Farrelly. Um, Midget, by all intents and purposes, the first world surfing champion. This was obviously before a tour, um, but the history being, you know, that back in the day, the Makaha Championship was the closest thing to a world title. When he came along and won it in early 1963, it was such a huge milestone for Australia um, and Australian surfing because Australia was such a conservative little zone, and they really kind of we're still frowning a bit on the surf scene and, and he really legitimized it and became a national hero almost overnight, you know, got his own TV shows, all that kind of stuff and inspired a whole generation of Aussies that ended up dominating the sport and really actually paving the way for the tour that exists today. So we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Midget Fairley. And I thought there was some, uh, some good, uh, pieces all over the web. Um, World champ Peter Townend wrote a nice little tribute on our site, but we saw a, a lot of good tributes everywhere. Yeah, I checked out Matt Warshaw's from the Encyclopedia Surfing. He had a really nice compare and contrast, or he, he republished one between Midget and his former protege, then rival, Matt Young. You know, they kind of grew up together, and then they parted ways over ideologies um, <laughs> and, and then became very public combatants you know, over the <laughs> next several years. So... It's just, it's always like a thrill to learn about almost sort of the prehistory era of, right. of professional surfing and exactly how pioneering some of these guys were. And 
it, it's hard to put yourself in that mindset of someone like Midget who sort of bucked all societal norm in his home country and became so proficient at his passion that he was able to travel overseas and, and dominate an international scene and, and, and become a wellspring for an entire culture of acceptance in Australia. So very sad that he's passed, but um, he certainly left a considerable legacy. That's right. He has, and we want to thank him. I think, you know, Dave, I think we uh, have covered enough beats for this week. We will be tuning in next week, and uh, hopefully we'll have some nice news on Chopu, some updates on the world title race and what's going on. It'll be interesting to see if the event's over by then or not. Yeah, that's always the thing when you kind of are faced with these um, you know, forecasts that are not definitive, right? Right. Um, where it looks like you can almost run any day. Um, I guess if we're going to stick with our, our mandate from this year, we'll run the first two days and the last two days. Um, <laughs> Seems like the pattern. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, I think everyone's just will kind of wake up and check it, dot com it. So it'll be interesting. And as I said, it definitely matters and will have a huge impact on the title race moving and, ahead. And, and this is really the, the kickstart to the end of your sprint. You know, you got Tahiti. It's followed closely by Trestles. It's clo- followed closely by the European events, which is followed by the Triple Crown. And, you know, we may see a brand new type of champion emerge this season on the men's side. It goes fast. The second half of the season seems to go much faster than the first half. And I know you're jumping on a plane tonight. Yes. So we will likely be checking in with you via phone next week. The, truly the, the coconut podcast next week. So. Thank you for joining us, folks, and we will see you next week when we check in with the B-Team.